Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So good to have all of you here. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, Real quick, I told the first service, uh, I'm struggling through a bit of a cold. My voice is kind of going in and out. And um, so if at some point during the morning I sound like a 12-year-old boy, um, feel free to laugh. It's okay. God created laughter. Uh, After the first service, though, somebody came up to me and said, man, I was disappointed your voice didn't crack. So can't promise it's going to happen, but it it might. Um, Well, this morning you find us uh, in the midst of a a new series. Actually, we're starting a new series uh, called Well Said. It's pretty easy by the the, uh, Rolling Stones picture up there uh, to tell what this is going to be about. It's about the tongue and the words that come out of our mouth. Uh, we are, as we look in this series, the, the heart of it is we are communicators. We are communicators. We use thousands of words each and every day to communicate things. Some of our words, we relay information. We, we educate with our words. We encourage with our words. We express uh, emotion and feeling, feelings with our words. Uh, and at times we use our tongue, we use our words to tear others down to dismantle them, and to make them feel ashamed. And even, I would say this, even the quietest person in this room uses a thousand or more words a day to communicate something. And I I would say that it is definitely a man, although I don't know who the quietest person in this room is, it most definitely is a man. But even that person, whoever he is, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, I'm sitting next to him. Uh, But... Whoever he is, uh, he still uses thousands of words uh, in a day to express things. And the problem with this is that we use so many words in a day that we can forget uh, how much weight our words carry. We can forget very easily how much uh, meaning there is behind our words and, and the effect that once our words leave our mouth the effect that they can have on another person. And because we use so many words, we can kind of get lulled to sleep in this and think, well, my words don't mean that much. The common everyday words that I use, it just doesn't mean that much. But as we look into God's word, God says something very, very different about our words. In fact, I would say that if if God uh, were to speak down on this room this morning and you were to hear his audible voice, he would say, your words matter a lot. Your words matter a lot. And so we're going to look into God's word, uh, just to comment on, on the Bible. Maybe you're a skeptic of the Bible. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Maybe you're here just exploring, uh, who Jesus is. What's this thing? Christianity. Uh, maybe your friend or your spouse drug you here. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. One of the things I would say uh, about the Bible and what we believe about the Bible, the Bible is just a compilation of 66 books. They're written by roughly 40 different authors. We don't know the author of every single book, so that's why we have to say roughly 40 different authors. And it's written over a period of thousands of years, and it has this one central theme in it, that God loves us and desires a relationship with us. And through Jesus, through Jesus coming to this earth, he's made that relationship possible. And so through his word, what we do believe is that those 40 or so authors were inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so as they wrote, they were writing with authority. And so it teaches us about who God is and who we are. And so as we look into his his word, uh, we look to it as an authority in our lives. 
So, as I say that, we'll look at Proverbs chapter 18 to kind of kick this series off. And here's what it says. Proverbs 18, verse 21. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat of its fruit. Now, I don't want to focus so much on the second part of that passage, but the first part. The tongue has the power of life and death. You probably don't often think, you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking that the words that I speak this morning are going to contain that much power. That the words that I speak are going to contain within them the power of life and death. Most of us, as we go through our days, if you think about your average day, okay, go back in the week, maybe Friday, maybe Thursday, whatever your average day was, uh, and you think about that day. Maybe that day you got in an argument with your spouse. Maybe that day you blew up and lost it with your kids and just, just verbally let them have it. Maybe it was your boss at work and you're tired, you're so tired of, of the way he treats you and his incompetence. And so you're, you're in that moment where you're with a coworker and you just vent about your boss. Maybe it's your neighbor or maybe it's your sister who you believe and you're quite certain that God, the only reason God put your sister on this earth was to annoy you. And so you are regularly telling her how annoying she is. Maybe you think I had the right to say those things. That person deserved it. They needed to hear that. Whatever it is, think about the words that you use. And how many of these moments, these everyday common things that happen in our lives, how many of these moments we go through in, in our lives, in a lifetime, and we don't think that they, they mean that much. We don't think that there's that much behind it. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a lot behind it. And there's a pastor, an author that I really look up to. His name is Paul Tripp. Uh, especially on topics like this, I really look to him. And he has given us this great quote. And one of the things as a communicator, sometimes you just have to kind of step back and said, wow, they said that so much better than I could have ever said that. And so that's why, if you ever wonder why pastors put quotes up there, it's because we couldn't say it better than they did. So we just got to use their stuff. And he wrote a book called War of Words, War of Words. And he has this quote in it. And I wanted to share it with you. It's a little long, but we'll work through it. We think that words are not that important because we think of words as little utilitarian tools for making our life easier and more efficient. When they are actually a powerful gift given by a communicating God for his divine purpose. Now I want to stop there. We as people are created in the image of God. God is a communicator. We see it in the very beginning of his word in the book of Genesis, in the creation story. He speaks and things come into being. He communicates. And it's something special that we as humans share with him as we are designed in his image. You think about the complex vocabulary. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, uh, my children or my spouse doesn't have that complex of a vocabulary. But we still have a complex vocabulary above anything else here on this earth. And it's a gift that is given to us by God. But all of us are tricked into thinking that words aren't really that important. Because they fill all those little mundane moments of our lives. Maybe that's exactly why they are profoundly important. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you only make three or four big decisions in your life. 
And most of you won't be written of in the history books several decades after you die. The people you leave behind will struggle to remember the events of your life. You live your life in the utterly, utterly mundane. And if God doesn't rule your mundane, he doesn't rule you because that's where you live. Now, I don't like the fact that he points out that very few people will remember my life after I die. I don't know about you, but I am a little offended by that, even though he says I shouldn't be. But we spend most of our lives in these mundane moments of life. Loading the laundry machine. Driving to work on the same road at the same time. On the same day, every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're driving to work or driving home. We're having uh, that evening meal again. We're helping the kids with their homework. We're having that same conversation. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. The same conversation over and over and over again. Okay, and it becomes this, we think it's this mundane thing, but I have good news for you. I have really good news God is incredibly interested in your life and he is incredibly interested in those mundane moments of your life. He is incredibly interested in your life and he wants to use those, what we would say are mundane moments to transform you into something far greater. To transform you into something far greater and work it together to bring about a beautiful plan for your life. Now, let me help you with that because I thought that that was pretty good. As I was writing that down, I was like, wow, all right, that kind of works. But I didn't think that it would, would be something that you could take with you. So I wanted to give you uh, possibly uh, a chance to write some notes. And if you have one of these, which is a, a reading plan, and you have one and you are following along with us, it's on page 51 this morning is where we are. If you wanted to take some notes, uh, here you go. Uh, here's a good opportunity. God wants to be involved in the mundane moments of my life and use them to transform me into something far from mundane. So we're going to work on unpacking that a little bit and we're going to do it by looking into God's word. We're going to be in Luke chapter six. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter six. New to the Bible, or again, a skeptic of the Bible, not sure where Luke is. Uh, there's a kind of a road map as you look at, that's kind of the 20,000 foot view of all the, the books of the Bible. And then we'll pull in, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. So Luke, Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. And in my Bible, as I read this, the words are in red, and the words are in red because they are spoken by Jesus. Jesus is speaking here, and here's what he says, verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Jesus is pointing out a reality of his creation here. You do not pick, you do not pick grapes from thorn bushes, all right, or, or figs from thorn bushes. It just, the thorn bush in its nature can't create the fig or the grape. And so now he takes this and relates it to us as humans. He says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, the mouth speaks. 
And that's where I want to focus that last sentence. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I want to explain first what he means by the heart. In case you're, you don't know exactly what he's talking about. The heart, when, when God refers to the heart, the heart is mentioned some 500 or more times in Scripture. When God refers to the heart, he is not referring to the blood pumping organ that is in the middle of your chest. But what he is referring to is your decision-making center in your life. Your mind, your will, your emotions. You pull all those things together and it drives what, what makes you make decisions. So you think about it this morning. You got up and you made decisions. You made a decision what you're going to wear. You made a decision to come here. There were all kinds of factors that went into that decision. What am I going to eat for breakfast? Man, that donut looks good, but uh, really shouldn't. I feel fat, so I'm not going to eat the donut, all right? That goes in to the decision that you're making, all right? All of those things are driving your decision. And what Jesus is saying here is what's sitting at the center of your heart, what is ruling your heart, that is what will bring about your decisions. And not only your decisions are actions, but your words. Think with me for a second. If money is ruling your heart, okay, say for a second, money rules your heart then the way you respond to money issues are, are going to tend to be more intense. I'll give you an example. So you are a guy that is all about money. It affects how you work, where you work, when you're going to work. You probably put in a lot of overtime because you're thinking about the bank account. You're thinking about how much money do we have and how much money can I save? Money is driving you. Okay. And you get a call from your wife that says, Hey, I was at, I was at the gap, gap outlet, honey today. And, and there were some great deals. And if you spent $300, they gave you 50. So I had, I had to do it because, you know, I wanted the 50 and if money is driving you, right? Your response to your spouse in that moment is going to probably, I'm going to guess is going to be pretty ugly. Right? Because you're thinking about the $300 that came out of the bank account, not your wife or her well-being or how she was buying clothes for the family. So our words, the words that come out of our mouth, are an indicator. They are an indicator of what is in our heart. I will give you another example, or I'll give you an example of this, uh, a story from my life. And... It has to do with my oldest son, Gabe, and I asked for his permission to share this story because one of the things I feel for my kids, you know, as a pastor's kid, uh, you kind of get all your stuff like put out there for everybody else to hear. And so I talked to him about this. I said, Gabe, is it all right if I share this? And, and he said, yeah, you can share the story. So this past week, um, one of the things my kids love to do, they love to get out in the snow and we've had plenty of that and sledding kind of gets old after a while. So they, they said, Dad, can we, can we take the four-wheeler and can we hook the sleds up to the four-wheeler and, and go? And so I wouldn't let them do that, by them do that by themselves. They're not allowed to have that much fun without me along. And so I, I said, yeah, sure, I'll drive. And so I wasn't even sure how it would work because, you know, Monday there was 12 inches of snow on the ground still. It, it, we hadn't gotten this many heat wave. And so I wasn't even sure if the four-wheeler would run, and, and it did. But the problem when you're pulling a sled on, in 12 inches of snow, and the, the four-wheeler's making these tracks, and so the sled just keeps falling down into the tracks, and they would fall off. And especially, the, another problem was that there were three of them that wanted to be on one sled. 
So I had our nine-year-old, our seven-year-old, and our six-year-old all on the sled, and they're trying to figure out how can we do this all at the same time. And so they put the nine-year-old on the bottom, and the seven-year-old lays on top of him, and then the six-year-old lays on top of him. And that just does not work. I mean, after like a couple seconds, they figured out, oh, this isn't going to work. So I said, Ben, he's our six-year-old. I said, you come sit up here with me. I'll let you drive. And he can drive and the other two. And as we did this, it took some time. We kind of wore out a track and it was working pretty well. And our oldest, Gabe, he tends to, he tends to tease, antagonize our six-year-old Ben. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity for me to help Ben get his brother back. So... Isaiah, Isaiah's laying, Isaiah's our seven-year-old, he's laying on the sled, and Gabe had just fallen off, and so I said, Ben, watch this. So, as Gabe was getting close to the sled, I just hit the gas a little bit, and we'd go like 10 feet forward, and he would put his head down, and he'd walk some more, and then, again, we did it again, and we did this maybe three times, and finally, Gabe had had enough. I mean, this was, this was it. He was done. And so at this point, Isaiah had, had, he had set up on the, on the sled. And Gabe comes running full speed and quicker than I could hit the throttle. He tackles Isaiah face down in the snow. Now, you can imagine me as a dad. I'm looking back at this. I'm thinking, what did he have to do with this? Like, he was just sitting on the sled. And of course, Isaiah's like, gets up and there's snow all in his face and he's all upset. And I look at Gabe and I say, what, what are you doing? And he gets up and in a moment of just pure anger, he looks at me and he says, this is your fault. You made me do it. You made me hurt him. And I, I looked at him and I, how did I make you do that? And he said, you're making fun of me. You're picking on me. And he went through a whole bunch of other things. And I said something at first, I think the good in me came out. And I said something that I, I often say to my kids, if you want to borrow it, feel free. But I say this all the time. You are responsible for your actions. Nobody else. You are responsible for your actions. And he came back at me and he was upset and so then I said to him, I said, and it was in front, of, in front of Isaiah and Ben, I looked at him, I said, Oh, Gabe, far be it from any one of us to pick on you, because if we do, you're going to punish us, right? And he put his head down and, and felt bad, and we went on with the rest of the, the, the sledding and stuff like that. But what I used in that moment was sarcasm, right? What came out of my heart in that moment was I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to have to put up with this. I just want to have a good time of riding a four-wheeler and sledding, and this isn't helping. And so I use sarcasm. If you're a person who uses sarcasm a lot, let me just challenge you for a second. Sarcasm really does one thing. Sometimes it's funny, but it does a really good job of making somebody feel stupid. And so if that's your goal, to make somebody feel stupid, feel free. But... I would challenge you, and, I, and even in my own heart, I, I tend to use sarcasm some, and I'm working on it, because I don't think that it's helpful. But in that moment, you see a couple things going on. You see in Gabe's heart, all right, you look at the, the heart of a child, and in Gabe's heart, Gabe is, he's defending himself, and he's not thinking at all about his brother or anybody else. He's thinking, I'm being made fun of, and I don't like it. 
And so what was ruling his heart in that moment, maybe you could say it was pride, maybe it was just his own uh, self-dignity, whatever it was. And I'm not saying it was bad, but the response that he had was awful. And then in a moment where I should be as a parent, you know, when you're parenting your kids, it takes to correct them properly. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes forethought. And I didn't want to use any of those in that moment. And I don't, I'm not up here to pat myself on the back because God didn't really bring this to light in my own heart until I started working on this sermon. And it was uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, I started working on this sermon and I thought about it and I thought, man, I really, I really blew it in that opportunity with Gabe to speak into his life. And so what I did was as a result of this, I went back to him and I said, Gabe, how did you feel in that moment when I, when I said that? And he was like, well, I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed of the decision I had made and, and who I was in that moment. And I thought... You know, God has given me authority in your life as your dad. But I'm sorry because he has not given me that authority to treat you like that. So please forgive me. And if you're wondering, maybe you're a person that has had moments like this that have happened in your life. And you're wondering, man, how do I fix that? To be able to go back in that moment, especially as a parent... And sit with a child and apologize. What you are doing, I would suggest in that moment, is not mundane. But they are getting a clear picture of the cross. They're getting a clear picture of why Jesus came and died for our sin. Because they're seeing in your own heart. And you're saying, I'm not perfect. Jesus, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I want him to be ruling my heart. But in that moment, he wasn't. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And I didn't do that, like I said, until a couple days later. And it took some time. And so maybe you're in this room and you're not a parent. And I just bored you with another parenting story. Please forgive me. Uh, But just take that and put it into the context of where you are in your own life, in your own relationships. Right? Maybe it's that classic battle with your spouse this morning as you're getting ready to go to church. And you're the type of guy that's like, if if I'm going to be on time, i got to be five minutes early. And your wife is the one who, she's, it's far more important to be ready than it is to be on time, all right? It's far more important to look good than it is to be on time. And you think as you're trying to get her to get out the door, you're, you're using words. What are your words saying? Are they helpful? What are they communicating? Maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe it's a coworker. And that coworker makes your job so hard because they're not carrying their weight And you remind them of it all the time. Maybe through sarcasm, maybe some other way. Think about what your words are saying, though. Paul Tripp, again, use another aspect or another quote out of his book, says this. I actually want to believe that when it comes to communication, my biggest problem is outside of me and not inside of me. Gabe communicated that well. It's your fault, he said. I want to think that it's my kids, my wife, my neighbor, my boss. I want to think that my greatest and deepest communication problem doesn't exist inside of me, but rather exists outside of me. Friends, let me tell you, that is a dangerous, dangerous way to think. And here's why. It's very tempting. And most of us do it because we're thinking, man, if if my wife would only treat me this way, If she would only put dinner on the table when I get home, if she would only do this or that, then I would be. 
Or if my kids were the angels that I thought they were going to be, if they were the, the ones that they, they went to bed on time, they never fought, they ate their vegetables, they did everything they were supposed to do. And when I told them to do something, they said, yes, Father, that would be enjoyable for me to do that and be obedient to you. And we think that if only they were that way, then we would respond perfectly. And it's their fault that we don't respond perfectly. And friends, that is a dangerous way to think. And the reason is, the reason it's dangerous is because if, if I don't need a change, then I don't need a savior. If I don't need to change, then I don't need a savior. They need a savior, but I don't. But when I can look inside of myself and say, my communication problem, the words that come out of my mouth, that's my problem. Then what I do is when I realize that my words are hurting people and they're causing destruction, then I can say, Jesus, I need your help. Please forgive me. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you, I need you to be Lord of my life. And I need you to forgive me and help me to communicate in a way that builds your kingdom and not my own. So Luke 6, Jesus tells us this about the overflow of the heart. And I want to give it to you in a way that maybe you can write it down if you want to, or or maybe it's a little easier to, to process. So he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think the two things that Jesus is pointing out here fairly clearly. First of all, the words that we use, they're not word problems. Okay, if you think that your words are simply word, word problems, then you're never going to get to the solution because the problem is deep in your heart. And it's what's steering and directing your heart. That's what's generating the words that are coming out of your mouth. And the second goes right along with it. I think it's just said in a different way. Your words will reveal who is controlling your heart. <clears throat> I want you to think for a second. We're going we're gonna to look at two different kingdoms that we are, I believe, building. As I, we talk about the words that reveal who is controlling your heart, I think that there are, at work, there are two kingdoms here. There's my kingdom, the kingdom of me, of Chris, or God's kingdom. And I think we're either building one or the other. And I don't know that we're ever neutral in this. But <clears throat> take for a second and just think about Why do I say the things that I say? Whose kingdom am I building? And I would challenge you this morning not to cheat on this. Because our temptation can be to cheat this a little bit and say, well, I do say good things. I say a lot of good things. But go deep into the heart of it and ask yourself, why do I say those good things? I'll give you an example. If if you're a guy in the room and and you're married uh, and, and you are thinking about something that you want to happen at the end of the day with your spouse, all right? You may say some nice things early in the day to start earning some points for later in the day, all right? But let me ask you for a second, who is that for? Is that for her or is that for you? Or ladies, maybe you look at your husband and you, you, you say this, you're like, wow, have you, have you lost some weight? thinking in your mind, he still can't fit into those pants. I might have to buy him some new ones. But you say, have you lost some weight? And you're, you, you say this because you have a hope that you can, if I can build some confidence into him, maybe he'll get to the gym or maybe he'll finally finish that project that I've been pushing him to finish. And so I'm going to encourage him, but I'm encouraging him to try to get something else out of him. 
If that's you, I would challenge you. I'd say, are you really saying that for their benefit and for their encouragement? Or is it for what you want? Is it for your desires? The Apostle Paul, he brings uh, light to this, I think, in a way, as we talk about these two kingdoms that I believe that, that are going on or that are at war within us. And, and Paul was a guy, uh, in case you don't know who Paul was, Paul was a guy who was a hater of Christians. He did not like Jesus and he did not like his followers. And his main goal in life was to actually kill followers of Jesus. He, he wanted to persecute them, to throw them in prison. He thought of them as heretics, all right? But at a point in his life, Jesus shows up and Jesus reveals himself to Paul and Paul is changed in that moment. So much so that he goes on to write 13 books of the New Testament. He is one of the most outspoken champions of the gospel of Jesus Christ that there is in our history. And so when Paul writes, he writes with some, with some power, with authority, obviously, because I believe that the Holy Spirit was inspiring him as he wrote. And so he says this in Galatians chapter 5. You, my brothers... All right, so he's speaking to Christians here. If you're in the room and you're not a Christian, uh, he's not speaking directly to you. I would encourage you to listen in and hear what he has to say. But if you are a Christian, he's speaking directly to you. You, my brothers, were called to be free. All right, Jesus died on a cross and rose again that we might be set free from our sin so that when God looks at us, we are free from condemnation and accusation because of what Jesus did on the cross. And when we place our faith in him, we are made free. New and we are set free from the sinful nature. But he says, do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. In other words, uh, I'm going to go and do whatever I want because Jesus died on the cross to pay for that sin. It doesn't work that way. He says, don't use that freedom that you have in Christ to indulge in the sinful nature. And I believe the sinful nature is the first kingdom. It's our own kingdom. It's a kingdom built on selfishness and pride. But rather, he says, rather serve one another in love. For the entire law is summed up in a single command. Interesting the command that he gives here. Interesting the command that he gives. Now, God didn't ask Chris for what I thought that command should be. Because if he would have asked me, I would have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first commandment. And I would have thought that that's the one that Paul would go with. But notice he doesn't. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second kingdom that we should be building is God's kingdom. We should not be building our own kingdom, but rather we should be building God's kingdom. And when we love our neighbor as ourself, we'll look at the second part of that in a minute. When we love our neighbor as ourself, this is what is exhibited. My love for God is exhibited in my love for others. So Paul looks at us and says, you say you love God. Show it to me in your actions and your love for others. You say you love God, but it should be revealed then in your, the words that are coming out of your mouth. So if you say you love God, is it exhibited in your love for others? So he's not really caring so much at this point. Do you love God? He's saying, do you love others? Because if you love others, you love God. If you're a Christian in the room, if you're a Christian in the room, you've seen this, all right? You've seen this at work. God has done something in your own heart. 
And he's changed you and he's made you new. And you may struggle with going back and forth between building God's kingdom and the sinful nature. But if you are a Christian in the room, Jesus was sent to earth to proclaim the good news of the gospel and the message of his father in heaven. He says it often in the gospels. He speaks of his heavenly father, right? If you are a Christian in the room, you and I have been set out on the same mission to speak the good news of the gospel and to proclaim the love of our heavenly father and to be building his kingdom and not our own. And so our words should reflect this. Now, I do not mean, and I am not saying that we will not need to say hard things to one another. I'm not suggesting that we walk around saying only cushy things that don't have a lot of depth or meaning. That's not at all what I'm saying. Because if you look at the life of Christ, you look at Jesus' life, what he, he does is he often uses hard words, hard things. He'll say a lot of hard things. You look at how he speaks to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, the words he uses, we would look at and say, wow, Jesus, that's harsh. You hypocrites, you brood of vipers. Did you mean it that way? But everything that Jesus says is said with a purpose and meaning, and it's out of love for that person. And it's to benefit them, not to rip them apart or tear them down. The greatest thing that Jesus could do in that moment was to point out to the, to the Pharisees their hypocrisy. That was the lo- most loving thing he could do. There will be times in your life that you will need to say some really, really hard things. Things that you wish you didn't have to say. But what you can do is evaluate in your heart and say, am I saying this for their benefit or mine? Am I saying this, that they would benefit and grow closer to God? Jesus pushed people in that direction all the time. He was pushing people towards a relationship with God the Father, not away from it. And my question would be, what are our words doing? Are we pushing people closer to our God or further away? So perhaps you're sitting here and you're saying, well, this is good information, but how do I, how do I get there? What's, what's a practical thing that I can do to help me uh, say things that aren't so harsh or so critical or so cutting or destroying? Here's the, the biggest thing I can give you. Is that when you are at peace with God, that will be reflected in your words. When you are at peace with God, that will be reflected in your, in your words. So, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, the first thing to do is to repent of your sin and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you in my life. If you're a Christian in the room, the first thing that we need to do is repent. What I had to do on Tuesday or Wednesday as I thought about that conversation with Gabe was I needed to go back and I needed to repent and say, God, you did not give me uh, the authority in Gabe's life to, to be able to speak to him that way. Please forgive me. We have to repent. We have to acknowledge our need for him. Daily acknowledging our need for him and repenting of sin and coming back to him and saying, God, you are Lord of my life. May it be so in my actions. May it come out. When we are at peace with God, it changes everything. And when the pressure of life mounts for us, when the stress of life happens, 
what comes out? What comes out? I, I would share with you a story. Um, this, this week, as many of you know, this, this has been a really difficult month for, for Aaron and I, for our family. Uh, for those of you who don't know, our youngest son, uh, Josiah, is 15 months old. He was diagnosed with a rare, very rare form of kidney cancer. A uh, large tumor grew on his kidney, and uh, several weeks ago he had to have surgery to remove that. And this morning I stand before you and I praise God. Uh, the doctors have said that he is cancer-free, uh, that he does not have cancer anymore. Uh, and, yeah, you can praise God for that. And I say that in the midst of knowing that there are those of you in this room that are struggling still with cancer or other illnesses, and you're wondering, why, why haven't I been healed yet? And I don't have a good answer for you for that. But you will be able to relate to what I'm about to share. Uh, because as we went through this moment with Josiah this week, uh, the, this past couple weeks with him, uh, there were some times in there where the pressure was really mounting in life and the stress was pushing in. And no more so than the week that, Aaron, that Josiah was in the hospital. We found out that he had a tumor on a Friday. Uh, by Tuesday, he was, he was having surgery to remove that tumor. So from Monday to Friday... Uh, Aaron was in the, my wife, Aaron was in the hospital with Josiah and I was there Monday and Tuesday, but Wednesday came along and I needed to come take care of a couple of things. I needed to get home because we had four other kids that needed taken care of. And, and so some things were, were going on. And in those moments of like extreme stress, you just wish that life would stop for a minute. Like if you could just push the pause button and not get the bill from the phone company or the car wouldn't be breaking down in that moment or that the kids would understand, the kids would understand, you know what, dad's stressed, mom's stressed, we need to just be perfect for the next three days. We can't fight with one another, we can't argue about going to bed, the vegetables will taste magnificent, like but that doesn't happen. You want to push the pause button, but you can't. And so you're going through life and there's all this stress. And here I am, I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to have this all together. And Aaron is at the hospital and I'm home with the kids and I'm fighting to be at peace with God. I'm like, God, I know I want to have your peace, but there's all these things happening. And I can sense in my words, in the way I treat the kids, I'm getting shorter in my responses to them, I'm certainly not taking the time to work through those parental moments where I'm like, oh, I got to fix this in their life. And we're going to have a good sit down conversation about that. I'm not taking that time in those moments because there's so much stress. Those moments are good indicators for us of saying, who is ruling my heart? Because when I am truly at peace with God, it will come out in the way I respond. So even in the midst of great heartache and stress, when we have that understanding that God is in control of all things, and we truly trust that he is good, and that his will will be done, and his will is beneficial for me. His will is beneficial for me. Then we can be at peace. And it puts our, our mind and our heart at ease and it will come out in our words. will come out in our words. Paul goes on in, I don't know what just happened there. There we go. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 5. And 
Our words matter because within our words is the power of life and death. And Paul goes on in chapter 5 and he says this. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. When you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Notice what Paul says here as he finishes this conversation on these two kingdoms. The sinful nature in my own kingdom or am I building God's kingdom? He says, when you bite one another. So when you speak harshly, critical, selfish, sarcastic stuff to one another, what are you destroying? You're not, it doesn't necessarily say you, Paul doesn't say you're going to destroy the relationship, which is possible. But I guarantee you, you will destroy the relationship if you destroy the person. If you destroy the person, the relationship will go with it. And Paul says, you destroy people with your words. In the tongue is the power of life and death. Sometimes I've heard this said before in different scenarios, but I've heard some people use this. They, they might be harsh and I might be speaking with, with a friend or with a spouse or someone that, that is hurting. And what will come out sometimes is they know I didn't mean it that way. Or they know I didn't, I didn't say it in a way that was, they, they know I love them. They know I love them. And yet the pain and the heartache is there because of the words that were said. It's not enough I would suggest to you it is not enough for us to say, I didn't mean it that way. It's probably more correct for us to say, forgive me because I said that the way I meant it and it was harsh. It was wrong. Please forgive me for that. But oftentimes we try to deflect it and say, ah, it didn't mean that much. They know I love them. When actually our words are cutting and they're hurting and they're destroying. This past week, uh, our junior high director, Becky Harper, she did an exercise with the junior high students. And if you've ever worked with junior hires, you know it's really hard to get them to communicate. It's really hard to get them to share what's on their heart. I'm not even sure if they know all the time what's on their heart, but it, it's an important aspect of working with them. And so she brilliantly came up with this idea because to actually sit in a group with them and try to get some things out of them can be really difficult. So she gave them a piece of paper and she said, here's a blank piece of paper and just write down your prayer requests on it. Write down anything that's on your heart that you want us to pray for. And as I got this, this, uh, this feedback from Becky, I got the things that uh, had been written down on those prayer requests. And as I looked at my computer, I was almost in tears as I read how many of those students are deeply, deeply hurt by the words of others whether it's somebody at their school that's bullying them, whether it's a brother or sister, or whether it's their own mom and dad. So many of them wrote about, please pray for me that I would be able to handle this when this person says this to me, or when my mom says this to me, please help. Please pray for me that I wouldn't fall apart. As I read that, I was like, ah, we just don't understand The power that is in our tongue. And here's the deal. If you're like me, you're going to have moments like Monday afternoon when I said that to Gabe. Maybe it's going to be even worse. 
Maybe you're going to have those moments where you spout off and you're serving that sinful nature in your heart and it just comes out. And then you look at yourself and you say, well, what do I do now? How do I fix it? Well, the beauty of the cross is that there is forgiveness from sin. And it's not just one way with God, all right? I I have this forgiveness with God. I know God loves me. I know Jesus died on the cross for that sin. But now I can go and apply it to my relationships. So those people that I have hurt with my words, I can come back to them and I can apologize. I can say things that, hey, it wasn't your fault. You're You're not like that. I should have never said it that way. Please forgive me. But it takes us lowering ourselves, dropping the pride, and going to another person and admitting, I was wrong. But when Jesus rules your heart, when Jesus is in the throne of your heart, it doesn't matter anymore. Because I am what I am by God's grace. I don't have to, I no longer have to build up my image. I no longer have to put you down to make myself feel better. Because Jesus is the one sitting on the throne of my heart, not me. It's not about me. And so when I go and apologize, I can come in genuine love saying, I am sorry. Forgive me. And God has given us that possibility. You could, before you even leave this place or on the way home in the car, you could look at someone else maybe that you've hurt and you could say, hey, I'm sorry. And what you will be doing is you will be speaking life into that person. That is something that is far from mundane. You'll be speaking life into that person. You will be encouraging that person in a way that they probably can't even express. And it will mean more to them than than I think they'll be able to say. So my challenge for us today, my challenge for myself, for us, is that we would look at the opportunities that we have to speak life into others. And in the times that we blow it, we'll go back and make it right. We'll speak life by going back and building somebody up that the love shared in that moment might cover over the offense. And that we would go and speak life into others. I will close with this one last thing. As I said, this has been a really hard time, really hard time for Aaron and I over the last three weeks. Uh, but one of the things that has really happened for us, and I have experienced in a way that I have never experienced it before in my life, is the outpouring of love and encouragement from others. You go through something really traumatic like this, and, and people want to carry that burden. They want to walk alongside you. And Aaron and I have been overwhelmed by the response from many of you. And I cannot express to you how much those words of encouragement meant to us. I mean, as you're sitting there on a Monday night before your 15-month-old is about to go into surgery and you're reading all of these messages and emails and comments, hey, we are with you, we're praying for you, is there anything we can do for you? It's overwhelming. And the times that I've been most emotional through this, this whole past couple of weeks or month, and I don't like to share that, but it's a reality, is as I was reading those comments that I got from many of you, is the times that I would get most emotional. And what was so emotional about it was I realized that it was something far bigger than myself. People were pouring into us and building us up. And it was Josiah's cancer was affecting far more people than just, just our family. So with that said, may we as a people go from this place humbly, confessing our sin, 
relying and depending on Jesus, building his kingdom, and then using our words not to tear others down, but to speak life into those that we come in contact with. And I realize that the, the power, the weight of this message may not be able to be communicated completely in my spoken word. And so I'm going to rely on somebody else that I look up to. His name is Toby Mack, and he wrote a song called Speak Life. And music speaks to the heart far better than the spoken word, I think, can too. And so I want you to just watch this video. It's called Speak Life, and uh, hopefully you're encouraged by it. Father God, I thank you that we can even call you Father. Uh, Lord, what a privilege, what a gift. Uh, Lord, that you love us so much that you would send Jesus to die uh, for the sin uh, that is in our own hearts. Lord, the sinful words that we've spoken this week. Uh, Lord, the selfishness, the the critical spirit that has come out. Uh, Father, I pray that you would forgive us, that your love would cover over that. Lord, that the blood of Jesus would, would wash us clean and would make us righteous again and restore that relationship with you. Uh, Father, help us in the midst of our great need. Uh, Father, our words can get out in front of us so easily, so quickly. And there's not a person in this room, uh, Lord, that hasn't wished that they could take something back that they had said. But Father, I pray that we would be humble people, people that seek your heart. Uh, Lord, that we seek your kingdom and not our own. Father, help us to do that in a way that brings you all the honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.